before we jump into Ephesians chapter 3 again, I, I want to just take a brief moment to just personally encourage you, if you uh, are able to make it on Wednesday night, this coming Wednesday, uh, this is a new thing that we're doing, this fellowship meal, this time of discussion on Wednesday nights. Uh, I believe that it will be, and I pray that it will be very fruitful. And you're going to see in today's text even that growing in our ability to grasp God's love for us primarily happens in the context of community. And I think about Jesus, how he often built relationships over a meal. In fact, uh, Tim Chester, an author, he, he wrote that in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. It sounds kind of like he's a Baptist, I don't know. But this coming Wednesday, we're going to enjoy a meal together, we're going to pray together, we're going to have a time to discuss Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, which is the passage I'm about to walk through. And uh, it, it's, I'm excited because my hope is, my prayer is that this will be a time where we will really have an opportunity to better connect as a family. And it would be fruitful for you. And so I encourage you to do that. All right, with that, let's dive into Ephesians chapter 3. And this is, again, if you haven't been with us, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison to a group of churches in and around Ephesus. And he is encouraging them to be united. One of the challenges of the early church is there was this division between the, the Jewish people, the Israelites, God's chosen elect people, and the non-Jewish believers, the Gentiles, And so they, there was this conflict. And so Paul, who was actually raised as a Jew, but called by Christ to be a missionary to the Gentiles, begins his letter by worshiping God. And he's worshiping God, that God is uniting all things in Christ, both in heaven and on earth. And that the Gentiles have now been invited into God's family, which is a, the heartbeat of this letter. He goes on to pray that the Gentiles would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation that they would know the hope that they have been called to and, and that they would know that they are God's treasured inheritance along with the Israelites now. That, and he prays that they would know the immeasurable greatness of the power that God has for them in Christ. And today we're going to see what that power is for. So back in chapter 2, Paul goes in to explain who these Gentiles were, which is us, by the way, again, right? We are the Gentiles. Uh, who these Gentiles were before the Messiah came, that, that we were dead in our sins, deceived by the power of darkness and without hope, that we were separated from God and, and from God's family. But God, right, being rich in mercy and because he loves us, made us alive in Christ, that he redeemed us with his own blood so that now we who were far off have been brought near, that the Gentiles now have access to God through faith in the Messiah. And so last week, we started chapter 3 where Paul describes his role in God's redemption plan, that he was the least of all the saints, and yet God chose to make him a steward of God's grace, giving him the revelation of the mystery of Christ to share with the Gentiles the good news that the Messiah had come, and through his life, death, and resurrection, he now offers to them eternal life through faith alone. 
All right, so that's where we've been. Today, we're going to finish up the first half of Ephesians, and we're going to see that Paul goes back to prayer, and he finishes this section off with a worship song, just like he started the letter, right? And we're meant to see the parallelisms between the beginning and the end of this section. And so, again, the immediate context of this passage in chapter 3 is that Paul has been talking about the Jews and the Gentiles uniting into this new humanity, being built up into the, the very temple of God, the place where God dwells by his spirit. And that's going to be significant as we move forward. And so the prayer request that he's about to share is for power, for them to have power to comprehend and know God's love. And then the worship song is an expression of confidence in God to be able to answer this prayer. That's where we're headed. Let's pray. Oh, Father, your word is just mind-blowing. And I pray that you would help me speak it clearly and that our hearts, like Matt prayed already, that we would receive it our hearts would be open to understand and you would use your word to change us, that your spirit would drive these truths deep into us and that the truths of the gospel would sustain us in the, in the midst of our trials. And that we, would, we would find hope in Christ and be encouraged in Christ as we leave here. You would strengthen our faith and our desire for you, our hunger for you, our anticipation of you moving in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. So we pick up in chapter 3, starting in verse 14. So Paul says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so this is the outline. I'm going to go back to the outline, thanks. Uh, we're going to see Paul's humble adoration. We're going to see a bold intercession, and we're going to see a confident celebration. All right, so let's start with the humble adoration. He starts off, verse 14, for this reason, which if you remember, this is the same way he started chapter 3, verse 1. Look back at verse 1. He says, for this reason I, Paul, and then he goes on this like tangent about his ministry of stewarding the mystery of Christ to the, for the Gentiles. And so it seems here that verse 14 is picking back up with what he had started to say in verse 1. For this reason, 
Again, he's referring back to everything that he's written in the first two chapters and everything that he just reiterated in the beginning of chapter 3. So he's saying, because you Gentiles are now part of God's family, are being built up together with the Jews to be God's temple, for this reason, I bow my knees before the, the Father. So going to your knees for prayer is a sign of humility, right? It's a sign of respect. It's what you would do back then, especially if you encountered a king or a great leader, ruler. And so Paul recognizes that he has been given access to God. And yet he doesn't take that for granted. He doesn't approach God flippantly. And notice the family language that Paul uses. Just like Jesus taught his disciples to, to address God as Father, that's how Paul addresses God here. And it's a reminder of who we are. We are God's adopted children, that he loves us as a, as a father. So Paul goes on. The father, verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now that's interesting. A lot of times we just kind of breeze over those kind of passages and don't really think about it. But the word, first of all, the word family here could also be translated as clan. And so God has families or clans both here on earth, but also in heaven. Psalm 89 mentions God's heavenly family. We read this. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. Okay, so who are these holy ones in the heavens, right? For who in the skies can be, that's another word for heavens, right? Who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. Uh, again, 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 19. And Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right and on his left. Psalm 82 describes this family in heaven as his divine counsel. In Job, they are called the morning stars and the, the sons of God. All right, so why is this significant? Why am I bringing all of this up? Now, if you recall, back in chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul celebrates that God was uniting all things in Christ, both in heaven and on earth. And so... God's big picture plan in Paul's mind is not just simply to unite the Jews and the Gentiles, but actually to unite God's earthly family with God's heavenly family. And this is a big part of Paul's understanding of the world. You see it throughout his letters. One example, Philippians 3, 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. John says something very similar in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. It's talking about Christ's return. When Christ returns, something will happen. We will be changed. 
So on a side note here, when the biblical authors talk about us becoming like Jesus, they have in mind a much bigger picture than what we typically do, okay? When we talk about becoming like Jesus, we typically are thinking about becoming morally perfect or good, or at least less bad. We turn the reality that we will one day be as Jesus is into a task that we must perform or God will be mad at us. But that is simply not what the Bible teaches. You see, we tend to turn grace into a duty. Instead of feeling guilty about how much we are not like Jesus and then continually like recommitting ourselves to do better, we need to simply let the blessing of what he did and will do change the way we think about what it means to become like him. Instead of constantly feeling guilty, we should simply feel grateful that one day we will be like him and with him. That we have been adopted. That Jesus is our brother. That God loves us like he loves Jesus. And so we are his children destined to be with him as part of his heavenly family, his divine counsel, his holy ones. And so Paul has this in mind. As he's praying here, he begins his prayer with this humble adoration that God as Father, who has named all the families in heaven and on earth, that, that will one day be reunited. That he's the one who's named us all. He's the one that's given us life and identity and, and purpose. And so Paul bows to his knees, his knees in, in humble adoration to make this bold request. Okay, let's look at the bold request. Look at verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, okay, so not according to the church's worthiness, not according to, to what you've done or haven't done, that you haven't earned it, not according to the church's glory or the church's honor, Paul makes his request very much like Moses would pray in Exodus based on God's character, based on your glory, based on your character, according to your honor, because of the riches of your glory, would you give your church more grace. He says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, literally y'all, it's plural, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And again, this mirrors what we saw in chapter one in that prayer, in this first prayer. Paul prayed in that prayer that we would know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the work of his great might. And he went on to say that it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That same power is at work in us. So how so? Verse 17. He says, You may be strengthened with power through the Spirit and the inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now this is interesting. This is the only place in all of Scripture that mentions Jesus being in our hearts. And it has nothing to do with salvation here. Okay, that's typically how we talk about, like you have to accept Jesus in your heart to be saved. The scriptures never actually use that same kind of language. Okay, uh, here he's talking to believers and he's praying that they would be empowered to have more of Jesus in their heart, that Jesus would, would dwell, would take up residence. And, and this is similar language to what we saw in Exodus, that God desires to dwell with his people. John in his, in his gospel said that Jesus came to tabernacle or dwell with us. And this has been the heartbeat of 
Paul's letter, that the Gentiles and the Jews have become one new humanity and are being built into the very temple of God where God would dwell by his spirit. And so this is what Paul is just driving home over and over. This is where God would dwell, where we would gather regularly to get a glimpse of God's glory, of the heavenly realm. When we gather together, God's presence is, is here. And so Paul prays for us to be empowered by God that, the, that our hearts might be open to have more of Jesus. And so what does that mean? He goes on. He says that you, that, that y'all being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend. And so our hearts being filled with Christ gives us roots like a strong tree and a foundation that we're grounded in a life of love. And it's important you understand that Paul is talking about love for one another here. Okay? He's talking about a community of love because this is where we grow to comprehend God's love for us primarily. As, as we spend time with a community that is rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, a community that's filled with God's Spirit, a community that, that where we have Jesus in our hearts, that's where we experience God's love towards us in tangible ways, and that's what makes God's love real to us. In fact, the second half of Ephesians, chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul is going to describe what this looks like on a street level. So again, Paul prays that y'all being rooted and grounded in love for one another may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, in other words, as a church family, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that y'all may be filled with all the fullness of God, Paul's request is that God would grant us the strength to comprehend, to fully grasp the various dimensions of Christ's love towards us, all in all of its complexities, and to see the vastness of it. You think about it, Scripture's filled with examples of people that had great faith, right? Like David and Goliath, like Daniel and the, the lion's den, but it's also filled with examples of God's people confused lacking faith, and not comprehending God's love. See, plenty of examples of that, too. I think of Jonah, right? The prophet who ran away from what God had called him to do. Jonah had been called by God to go to the Ninevites and tell them to repent of their evil ways and turn to the Lord. And Jonah ran, not because he was scared of the Ninevites. He ran because he knew that God was merciful and gracious, and slow to anger, and abundant in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Jonah could not comprehend why God would love these wicked Gentiles. In fact, Jonah gets so mad at God, he prays, God, just take my life. He says, it's better for me to die than to live. And at this point, you would think, God has every right just to take Jonah out. Right? I mean, not only has he been disobedient and running from what God has called him to do, he's been disrespectful. Jonah had the audacity to call what God was doing evil and unjust. He's that angry with God. And so what does God do to respond? I love this. He, he doesn't wipe 
Jonah off the face of the earth. Instead, he lovingly and compassionately teaches Jonah through an object lesson. He causes this, this, this plant to grow and give Jonah some shade, and then almost immediately he takes it away. And of course, <laughs> that upsets Jonah again, but it gives God an opportunity to, to teach Jonah a valuable lesson. And this is how the book of Jonah actually ends. This is like the main point of the book of Jonah. This is how it ends. In chapter 4, starting in verse 10. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? I love this. I mean, God gently shows Jonah why he loves even the Ninevites. And, and I think in this message, he, he shows us, he shows Jonah the, the depth of his compassion towards both the uncircumcised heathen sinners in Nineveh, but also towards the rebellious, judgmental Israelite prophet. He shows his compassion and his love towards both. You think about Paul. Right before this prayer in chapter 3 in Ephesians, he's expressing his amazement that God would give him grace of all people, the least of the saints. Paul had come to comprehend the depth of Christ's love for him. A guy who had been a Pharisee who was hypercritical of Jesus' followers and bent on persecuting them and shutting them down, and yet God chose him to be a steward of his grace to proclaim the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. So Paul is praying that the church would comprehend Christ's love, because he had experienced Christ's love first. I think that's naturally what we do. The more we experience and we know the love of Christ, the more we want other people to know that same love. Notice also Paul says he wants them to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And we're meant to see the irony here, right? Paul wants the church to know the unknowable. He prays, I want them to, Lord, help them to comprehend all the various dimensions of your love, but I want, go beyond that and help them know the unknowable, to see the unseeable. Back in his prayer in chapter 1, he put it this way. He said that they would receive a spirit of wisdom and revelation. The Greek word is apocalypse, right? That they, it's not talking about the end of the world. He's talking about, he's praying that they would, like him, have a glimpse into the heavenly realm. That the eyes of their heart would be opened to see beyond the physical reality that we see. Paul recognizes that with God's help, because we are made in the image of God, having both a body and a spirit, that we have this amazing capacity to both intellectually comprehend God's love for us, but also to intimately know the unknowable through his indwelling spirit, opening our spiritual eyes. And so he finishes his prayer that y'all might, y'all may be filled with the fullness of God. That little phrase there is packed with meaning. So remember how this prayer began. For this reason, this prayer is given in light of what Paul has been writing earlier. The, the, the main point he's been 
saying, and I've said this many times already today, that the, he's been given this mystery of Christ revealed to him that the Gentiles have been brought into the, the family of God so that now both the Jews and the Gentiles are making this new humanity where they're being built up into the very temple of God where God would dwell. The dwelling place of God is now in our midst when we gather. And this language of filling goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 40, just after the tabernacle had first been built and the, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. When Solomon finished his temple, God did that same thing, filled it. And then it's interesting, in Ezekiel, early on in his visions, he saw the glory of the Lord depart from Solomon's temple. And it was because it had been profaned with idolatry and it was about to be destroyed. But then towards the end of Ezekiel's prophecies, he, he sees this description of, of this future new creation temple. I want to read this to you. This is Ezekiel 43, 1 through 5. <clears throat> then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This is the background that Paul would have had in his mind as he's praying for the church to be filled with the fullness of God. Which leads him directly into the song in verse 20 and 21. And notice Paul's confident celebration here. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So Paul believed with all of his mind, with all of his heart, that God could answer this prayer. In fact, he believed that God could go above and beyond anything that his finite mind could think or his heart could desire. Paul confidently praises God here. And he anticipates, he's anticipating God, God's power to work within us so that the glory, his glory is known from generation to generation forever and ever. And for the past 2,000 years, God's been answering this prayer. I mean, this should blow us away that we're still here looking at Paul's words and his prayer 2,000 years later. Because whenever and wherever followers of Jesus gather together, lifting up the name of Jesus, filled with the Spirit of Jesus, His presence is here. Hmm. This is true in Wilmore, Kentucky, and Shepherdsville, Kentucky, right? This is true in the Congo and in Canada. It's true in China and California, in Scotland and South Dakota, wherever and whenever the followers of Jesus gather, his presence 
fills the temple of Christ's body, the church. And so let me encourage you this morning and every time we gather to anticipate that. That is good news, that we get to come gather together in the very presence of God. Let's pray that we would have eyes to see it and hearts to believe it and desire it. Let's pray. Father, often we, we confess our, our hearts and our minds struggle to comprehend your love we struggle to see and to believe that your very presence is in our midst. And so we plead, we, we beg you that you would open up our spiritual eyes like Paul prays. And that our hearts and our minds would fully comprehend and know the heights and the depths of your love and your mercy, and your grace. And that it would overwhelm us. That it would, like Paul, bring us to our knees. And we would, like him, pray for those who we love. 